just going to make another adjustment. Dancing in the moonlight. Is that better? It's cut me in its spotlight. It's all right. Dancing in the moonlight. Free hearing aids with PRSI at Specsavers. Music to your ears. Find out more online. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Connor Faulkner and this is Driving Life. Welcome to episode 24, where I meet Bobby McDonough, Irish diplomat and former ambassador to London, Rome and Brussels. Now retired from the service, his regular Irish Times columns and media appearances give a fascinating insight. He was our ambassador to the UK during the Queen's visit and represented Ireland in many capacities in the EU. Do remember to check out previous episodes where I meet people like Frankie Sheehan, Teresa Mannion, George Hooked, Leo Enright, Dermot Ferreter and others. They're all listed nicely on SeniorTimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. Just Google Driving Life with Connor Faulkner and you can email me at connorfaulkner at gmail.com. So now let's meet Bobby. I called out to his home in Sandy Cove and tucked into his coffee as we sat down for a chat. Hello, Bobby McDonough, and thank you very much for, for agreeing to have the chat with me in your wonderful home in Sandy Cove in South Dublin. Uh, how are you? How are you keeping? I'm great. I'm delighted to do this, Connor. I'm four years into retirement, um, still staying staying busy in various ways, but enjoying the new phase of life enormously. And in your case, it it's, must be a big gear change because uh, you're a career diplomat. You've been Irish ambassador to the UK, to Italy. Um, we'll come to it, but your, your father and brother also both uh, very well-known career diplomats so there's a family trade and there you are in the family trade um, for a period of what well, 41 senior, years 41 years, years in yeah. total including as say at very very senior uh, senior level uh, so a fascinating window in history um, but then you retire and is that a total gear change now for you or, or how did you prep for that or get your head around well it is a change I mean I, I as I say 41 years 26 of them abroad and of course the later years in the, in the more senior positions. Yeah. Um, but uh, it wasn't that much of a shock for a few reasons. First of all, I'd been thinking about it for a long time. Yeah. I had ideas of what I'd do when I retired. And also I... Did um, you go on schedule? You didn't go early or late? I did. I left on my 64th birthday. Okay. At the time I left, we could have stayed till we were 70. That was the new rule. And a number of my colleagues have stayed beyond 65, which was yeah. the old retirement age. But like a few people, I wanted to retire when I was still uh, young enough to take on new things. Yeah, and, exactly. and I, I don't have any regrets about it. But I, it, it wasn't a huge shock also because I didn't retire directly from abroad. I had a year back in the department as Deputy Secretary General. So I was back, if you like, into Irish society and living right. out here in Sandy Cove. And also my last post, while it was, there's no nicer conceivable posting, I was ambassador to Italy. Um, it wasn't as hectic as yeah. the previous 12 years where I'd been in London and ambassador to the EU and, mm. and head of our European Union division. So it, it was a challenging job as well. It involved learning Italian. But I was, you know, I, I wasn't, um, for, for the last years before I retired, I wasn't working at that sort of crazy speed I've been doing for quite a yeah. while. Because um, you have been at the sharp end. I mean, amongst the things you've done in your tenure, uh, you were Ireland's ambassador to the UK during the Queen's visit here. Um, and that must have been, uh, I know you had your your, your, your moment, you, you met the lady yourself, I saw your reflections on her passing. Um, but you really were a witness to history, weren't you? Yes, that was certainly the most historic thing I was involved in. I mean, I suppose 
looking at my career as a whole, European Union negotiations was what I devoted myself to most. And if there was any one thing I wouldn't like to have missed out on in terms of career, that that was it. Because there's little more, uh, there's no other, no more challenging type of negotiation to be involved in than with all our partners in the European Union. But being involved in London uh, during the Queen's visit and being, you know, my wife and I being part of the Queen's party and standing at the bottom of the steps in the Garden of Remembrance when she laid the wreath in honour of people who died for Irish freedom, that was certainly yeah. the it, most historic thing I was fortunate enough to, to be involved yeah, with. In a four-day visit, that was probably the one, mo- well, perhaps that and her, her couple of focolos, Oscar Elga, um, but it was certainly you know a real punctuation mark in history, wasn't it? That, uh, well, I, I agree, Conor. I think it was, it was definitely the most important thing. I mean, everybody has their own favourite memory of the Queen's visit, and there were many other things, this, her speech at the, at the state dinner and, and indeed Mary McAleese's, and uh, the words in Irish and the visit to the Croke Park mm. and there were so many wonderful things about it but when you think of the great sweep of history yeah. that the Queen the first British monarch to visit an independent Ireland would lay a wreath in honour of people who died for Irish freedom uh, and bow her head in such a, a, a personal and dignified way uh, was quite remarkable and of course the next day joining the President where they both laid a wreath in honour of Irish people who died in British uniform Yeah. so there was a tremendous balance between those two elements that had been a long journey because that and we might talk about what's happened since because you could say in the arc of history that was the high watermark for um, British Irish relations um, it, it was a culmination of generation successes for a career diplomat working in that area it, it must have been one of the most satisfying and um, did we know at the time that that new high would be temporary or did it did it feel like a permanent change to us no i, th- I think uh, it, it felt pretty permanent and in some respects it is lasting and permanent but of course none of us least of all the, the British government and British media could have predicted that Brexit would have happened, which has yeah. uh, set a cat among the pigeons. But as you say, Conor, it was the culmination of other things. I mean, Britain and Ireland hardly knew each other before we joined the European Union mm. together. British ministers and Irish ministers didn't know each other. Officials didn't know each other. But then we found during half a century of membership that we actually get on quite well, that yeah. we speak the same language metaphorically as well as linguistically, that we could pursue shared interests together, that we had a shared structure for resolving our difficulties uh, and, and friendships, webs of friendship built up through that. And, and in parallel with that, the negotiations on Northern Ireland over a few yeah. decades that culminated in the Good Friday Agreement, similar levels of trust were built up and the fact we could achieve things together. So the Queen and, wasn't just a symbol, a symbolic, it, it was... Uh, it had a substantive impact, uh, but it did symbolise uh, the culmination of those processes that have been going on for a long time. And the career diplomats see it, see it all through, in a sense, through their through their careers. Whereas individual leaders, governments, perspectives, they kind of they they come and go. You get sort of tectonic movements of whether it's Charles Hahi talking to Tories in this epoch or um, so for the career diplomat what's the challenge like for you Do, could you find yourself on foot of a change of government in Dublin having to go back into your office in London the following week and deliver a diametrically different message or well in theory it could happen yeah. because diplomats are not uh, embassies are not independent empires mm. it's part of democracy that we represent the government of the day and I suppose there, there were times when there were significant nuances in terms of policy towards Northern Ireland in the, in the yeah. 1980s. Um, uh, so in, in principle, uh, as somebody who is a civil servant within a democracy, if a new government comes in with a radically different point of view, then of course, 
we, re- we reflect that point of view. But we're not uh, simply pawns in the game. Yeah. Uh, we have two things that we can always do. One is that we can... Um, for example, when I was in Brussels, you're not handed a, a set of speaking points to read out every day. <laughs> you know what the broad policy is, which yeah. you have to uh, reflect. But the first thing you can do is and have to do is to find the best way of expressing that, find the best sort of alliances to build up that are not being micromanaged from Dublin. And the other thing you can do, of course, is to shape the policy mm. because the policy in Dublin, uh, whatever it is, aspect of foreign policy, is influenced by our embassies abroad who are reporting on the latest developments and the personalities yeah. involved. So I think, you know, it, 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 it is possible to influence the shape of policy, to decide how to implement it, but ultimately we're a democracy and we implement what the government decides. But it is in Ireland, in almost all cases, theoretical because governments share their, successive yeah. governments have shared their views on Europe and, and by and large about Northern Ireland and, and, and about the importance of promoting trade and so yeah. on. Whereas, um, it, the, I mean, we've just seen in London recently you know, how political things can become because the the head of the Treasury, the senior civil servant of the Treasury, who had served many governments of different hues and has a massive reputation for competence, uh, was sacked the first day that Quasi Quartain came in there. And that's not the sort of thing that happens in this country or has happened in this country. And it's it's really quite shocking, not just because um, he, he was an admirable person, because it's what it says about the relationship between politicians and civil servants. After all, yeah. if the senior civil servant can be sacked on day one, what what message does that send to the other civil servants about whether the ministers in, in the British case now actually want objective advice? Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro phones, make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times? Visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook. Yeah, do you know, you, you, you said it's not something that um, it's not something that you'd see in Ireland. It, it wasn't something that you would ever have seen in the UK. I think it's been fascinating to watch in the UK that much of the assumptions that we make are, are just that. They're based on assumptions. We assume a degree of courtesy and protocol and much of the dip- diplomatic world is kind of based on those niceties isn't it um, and then you realize when they're just thrown out I mean if a minister said just walks into his office on the first day and, and sacks the most senior guy sitting in there um, he's entitled to, to do it but you see the, the role of the civil servant like the role of the, the diplomat that I was describing is to give honest objective advice mm. and ultimately when the politicians decide to implement what the politicians decide that's democracy but in this particular case, to get rid of somebody who has a stellar reputation and and uh, experience, um, it's almost as if they don't actually want the good advice. Yeah. I mean, if they didn't like, if they kept him on and wanted to do something different from what he was recommending, of course he would have gone with that and he would have provided them with the facts and the figures and implemented. Mm. That's the strange thing is that we inherited the civil service system from the British, and yet that old style 
system of the politicians taking the decisions, but having a respectful relationship with civil servants, giving objective advice is actually in a healthier, healthier condition in Ireland than it is it, in the it, UK it, clear, it, it, clear, it clearly is. And it, for me, it's one of the tenets of a democracy. It's not that it's a specific rule, but there's a sense that there's the institutions will continue to function, that it's a sort of a glue there, um, which is why, you know, there might be policies that carry on from government to government to government and are actually being pursued by the civil servants. Um, so when, when politicians can just throw those out on foot of a populist mood, everything feels a, bit, a little bit less stable. Um, yeah, I think, I think I, I mean, Yes Minister, that very funny uh, TV programme, uh, was funny because there was an element of truth in mm. it. But it's only a very small element of truth. I mean, I, I have never known in my 41 years civil servants trying to hoodwink ministers or conceal options from them. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's the, the job of a good civil servant is to explain what the options are and what their implications are and then whatever the politician decides, go with it. And that's the way the Irish civil service works. Yeah, and, you know, collectively we've done a pretty good job. I was One of the conversations I had was with the historian Dermot Ferreter and we were talking, or he was talking about the fact that um, now we can, we can honestly say that Ireland has been a hundred years as a stable democracy um, and you know much to be said of that so we're now starting to feel like one of the more mature and solid places in the world um, the benchmark was always the UK and so I suppose one of my questions for you is what happened to the UK that that uh, uh, the Brexit referendum could have turned into this doom loop of, of reinforcing culture war what happened over there? You were ambassador at yes. the start of it. So do we, well, you left the UK in around 13, 14, I think. In 13, yes, 13. yes, yes. But I could, I mean, I could see the issue looming. I, I think um, I could recognise then that there were two Britons. Uh, mm. You know, there was the, uh, the modern internationalist, self-confident Britain yeah. that um, organised the 2012 Olympics, which was in right, the pinnacle of that sort of Britain. Britain that was confident in its yeah. ability. You had cool Britannia in cool Britannia. Years and, and the capacity, the confidence in its ability to negotiate in the real world and, yeah. and, and justified confidence because it was very influential, including in the European Union. And then you had a different Britain, which was more retro, which was looking back to an extent to the Second World War, which was lacking in self-confidence. And is the cliche of loss of empire, loss of prestige, was that really playing into it? I think that was part of it. I mean, sometimes people will resent that and resist it and say, mm. you know, are you saying it was all about empire? Of course it wasn't all about that, but that was one of the one of the factors playing into it. After all, when, when Ireland joined the European Union, uh, it was an opportunity for us to move beyond our nearest neighbour yeah. uh, and uh, to develop new benchmarks. You, you mentioned the British role as the benchmark, but of course, over the years, the Scandinavian countries, for example, have yeah. ways become a benchmark for us. It, it was to give us wider influence than we ever had before. Whereas Britain, undoubtedly, by being in the European Union, had more influence than it now has outside. But it didn't have the influence that it had when it was an empire. And I think it just found the idea of qualified majority voting and not always getting their own way, although they got their own way Probably more than any other well, country. Well, I was going to say they were actually extremely effective in the European Union. I, I mean, they, you know, won many of the arguments, and more than any of the other big nations, kind of really shaped. Um, I suppose the limitations of because there's a there's a, a federalist view of the European Union, um, which is perhaps has been shared by the French and the Germans, and and an anchor on that often um, was the UK. 
So, you know, they and they had enormous diplomatic successes. I think Margaret Thatcher essentially achieved every single objective she had uh, out, out of the European Union. Um, well, the EU was very flexible. I mean, John Major also got the opt-out from the Social Charter. I mean, mm-hmm. not, not that that was necessarily wise, but it was what he wanted. Uh, and, of course, they weren't in, this, in, in the single currency. Um, so, in a way, they had... Uh, got all the flexibilities that that they believed were were in their interests. One of the things that happened, though, and whether this was deliberate or just just seeped into the groundwater, but for a period of about 30, 40 years, um, every lazy politician, every lazy barstool in England, permanently reinforced by press, just bitched about Europe, just bitched about Europe. And anything that was wrong, the easiest thing to do is yes. about uh, that's very the, true. the song about Jacques Delors back in the eighties yes. and nineties. Yes. The tabloids have have a lot of responsibility for what's hap- happened in the UK, uh, both in relation to Europe and more generally. I mean, the way the tabloids attacked the the institutions of democracy in the UK, including yeah. their courts, uh, and the way they didn't call out the proroguing of Parliament and so on. I mean, it is hugely important that in this country, if somebody does something that is potentially wrong, mm. they will be hounded until the issue is resolved in one way or the other. And that's true both of government and opposition parties because the media will will pursue the issue, if anything, sometimes too strongly. Mm. Uh, whereas in the UK, the good media will pursue an issue uh, and you'll have the Financial Times and the Guardian, the Channel 4 News, or whatever, mm. pursuing an issue. But then the next day, there will be a headline in the Daily Mail or the Daily Express or the Daily Telegraph or all of them, yeah. you know, proclaiming black to be white. Yeah. So it's not just sort of the irritation of having shallow tabloid newspapers, but it's the way that the whole news cycle uh, doesn't become, reach its, it's natural be, conclusion. Yeah, it's become a shallow tabloid, <coughs> shallow t- tabloid yes. world. I think that was one of the factors to go back as to you know how Brexit came about. I mean, you know, it was a, a, a coming together of specific things on a specific day. It mm. now appears the majority of British people think Brexit was a mistake, but the, the tabloids played a part in it. And it wasn't just um, the bitching about Europe, but it was an entirely fanciful mm. notion of what Europe was that was largely created by Boris Johnson. I mean, he, he was a very yeah. skillful journalist. We, we have to use journalist in inverted commas well, there. Yes. But he created, created a, a myth about Europe, yeah. about, you know, square bananas and prawn flavoured crisps and so on that was just false from beginning to end. But people um, pe- people actually believed it. And yeah. so the European Union that people in Britain voted to leave in 2016 wasn't the real one. It was just a fiction of Boris's imagination. Yeah, it was this, this comic book, uh, European Union, uh, um, sort of an, an easy pantomime villain. And in the meantime, the behaviour of the Farages of this world and all that was uh, A, disgraceful, and, and, and B, obviously just stoked the flames even more. Um, now, the European Union, one of the false predictions perhaps made in the UK was that the EU was about to fall apart and there was no way they would, you know, Mercedes alone would insist that the Brits got everything they wanted from a trade deal. And... Um, and I, 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 I think they were genuinely surprised by the resilience um, displayed by the EU. Uh, how, how did their antenna fail them that badly there, do you think? Well, I think it may come back to an extent to what we were talking about a moment ago, about about dismissing senior civil servants. I mean, mm. it hasn't happened that much, but it happened. Their, their wonderful ambassador to the EU, highly able, he was he was sort of frozen out, Kim Darrick in Washington. I mean, this is a symbol of something wider. But th- uh, th- those if, voices... A lot of those people didn't, the politicians, didn't actually want to know the truth. They wanted mm. to believe their own myth. 
and sort of dismissing civil servants or dismissing the views of civil servants is only one part of it. But they wanted to believe the tabloid headlines. They wanted to believe their own view of what it was all about. Somebody presumably must have brought into the room the advice that uh, for, for the European Union, it was an existential challenge. The European Union simply couldn't yield on these things. It was vitally important. The EU had to stand by Ireland or they couldn't ever expect to retain the loyalty of every small state in in the enlarged union. And surely the British had to see that it wasn't possible for their adversary, so to speak. There's no point negotiating uh, by putting your adversary in an impossible position. Yes, I think um, uh, the EU has come through strongly in general in its managing of COVID, in its economy, but specifically on the Northern Ireland Protocol. And it it was partly because, of course, they're very... Uh, supportive of Ireland, but it was also because Brexit posed a very real problem for the single market. If the border was going to be kept open on the island of Ireland, uh, that meant that there had to be some way of protecting not just trade into the south, but right throughout the single market. Yes. So there was an inevitability that this would happen. But you see, I, I, I do think that you know, not being open to objective advice is is a large part of the problem. I mean, after all, Conor, if you were a sort of senior British civil servant now, and you were brought in to see Liz Truss, would you say, um, you know, Prime Minister, the European Union is really a very reasonable organisation. They didn't introduce this protocol unilaterally. Our government agreed to it. Um, They're not trying to make life difficult difficult for Northern Ireland and unionists. Breaking international law will damage our reputation all around the world. But if you were a senior civil servant, like, would you say that to her? Well, maybe you'd have to try and find a way to, to get your message through. What was it? Um, Henry Kissinger's flippant one about Vietnam. We should declare victory and get out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the political advice for Liz Truss would be, you know, declare victory and and reset, hit the reset button on the relationship. And perhaps even for no specific reason, perhaps even something like the Queen's passing and the succession there, it feels like there might be an opportunity for a reset button. Um, And if I was a civil servant giving it one last shot to toe the line between keeping my job and actually giving good advice, um, tell them to declare victory and hit the reset button. That would be very good advice, but I suspect if that was the advice you were likely to give, you wouldn't be anywhere near being invited to give her advice. Uh, no, I mean, there is an opportunity to set the reset button. And undoubtedly, the mood music mm. has improved in and around the election of Liz Truss to be Prime Minister and then the, the, the passing of, of the Queen, passing on the, the torch to her son. Um, so certainly, the type of language that people are using is much better than it was. And one has to keep one's fingers crossed. Mm. After all, you know, what can we do except keep an open mind? And if she genuinely does want to reset the relationship, we should greet her with open arms. Uh, I wouldn't yeah. mortgage my house on it, but uh, but it, it is a possibility. And wherever there is a possibility, we have to remain optimistic. Uh, I mean, ultimately, uh, a maturing of the British relationship with the EU will, will, will have to come about. Um, you know, so at some stage in the future, there will be olive branches and and opportunities um, I suppose that should be now on the on the EU itself Bobby the other thing I wanted to 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 talk to you about you spent over 20 years in one way or another engaged with or literally working with or or, or certainly the interface between the Irish government and the EU Um, so very few people know more about the institution as it has grown over those years Um, is there a fundamental tension a problem about the the centre um, exceeding its mandate, going beyond what the European populaces wish to support, um, and and has that been part of sort of 
recent nationalist and populist surges in certain countries? Well, I think the European Union is necessarily a very complex mechanism. But, uh, you know, if we consider whether the centre has gone too far, essentially what we're talking about is the democratically elected governments of the 27 or 28 countries. The decisions on the direction of the European Union are taken by... Um, but principally by, by the European Council, by, by our Prime Ministers. Um, and if they have misjudged anything, and that is a big if, I'm not saying they have, it's democratically elected politicians who have done it. But the European Union is faced with huge problems. Uh, you know, Putin marching up and down on our eastern border, Trump, if he comes back, being yeah. completely unreliable, the British having lost the plot a little bit. Mm. So if we want to preserve our prosperity and our values and our democracies and so on, we have to take responsibility for it ourselves. Mm. So while some people may feel that the European Council uh, in some respects has gone too far, others would say we haven't gone far enough. I mean, we've had to, for example, uh, work more closely on COVID. We had to change Mm. our rules after the last economic crisis. And we have to look now seriously at the security issue, because yeah. uh, where is NATO necessarily going to be in four years' time if Trump comes back? And these, these are huge issues. And I think on the EU's copybook over the last 20 years, response to the financial crisis, in hindsight, you know, the building was on fire, action needed to be taken. But in hindsight, you could say the response to the financial crisis was poor. It precipitated many years of austerity in all of the member nations um, with long-term consequences. By contrast, the response to COVID was good. Um, the you know in, in immediate fiscal support for all of the governments to um, to do what they did to hell with debt let's just keep paying wages and keep the economies going so maybe that was an example of a good lesson being learned there um, the next challenge is the defence one because we have uh, we have the war um, so far the EU's response has been has been good what should the EU be doing. Next, do you think? You touched on it there with NATO. Yeah, I think your analysis is fair. I mean, you have to say on the economic crisis that it was unprecedented. There was no script and there were 28 democratic countries trying to find a way forward. They certainly uh, didn't cover themselves with glory, but at least they've introduced various measures that will make it harder for the same thing to to happen again and they'll be better placed if it happens again. Um, But, you know, I suppose the starting point on security uh, is to say that Europe's um, security issue is now existential mm. uh, because of the threat from Putin's Russia, which to an extent came out of the blue for everybody and it is very real. And on the other hand, the uncertainty of what had happened in America. I mean, Biden yeah. and the European Union work very closely together, but Trump is utterly unreliable on Russia, on, on he doesn't know who, who America's real friends are in the world. So Europe has to both deal with the present situation, which I think it's doing uh, quite well. It's providing a lot of funding to help reconstruction in, in Ukraine, help their economy. It's provided, for the first time ever in any context, it's provided a billion euros worth of of, of weapons that Ireland has made its full contribution to that total, even though our yeah. money has been channeled through uh, through non, a non-lethal fund. It has also acted very quickly to give candidate status to, to Ukraine far quicker mm-hmm. than would normally be the case. And it's not... 
surprising that Ukraine prioritizes its wish to be part of the European Union because that is the democratic family that it wants to belong to. But yeah. there are huge challenges ahead for Europe in all these areas. Um, and look, if there was no war, um, I, I think many people would say it, it will be too early for Ukraine uh, to exceed yeah. the Union because in times of peace, the, the candidate countries, it's a long process for them. There's the key protocols and all the various. And essentially, in principle, they have to sign up permanently to European values, uh, everything from free press to independent judiciary to respect for rule of law, all of those things. Um, and, you know, a bit like the British, when they just desert those norms, it's 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 hard to know how you how you can how you can restrain them. Uh, so what I'm getting to there is Orban or um, you know what what can the European institutions do when a member goes rogue? Yeah, because <laughs> see the options are only nuclear ones really, and nobody's going to kick Hungary out of the union. But yes, well I think um, first of all you're you're right to say that. Uh, we, we have to be very careful about the accession of Ukraine or any of the other six countries which are in negotiations for membership for many reasons. We have to ensure that the European Union is is improves its own capacity yeah. to, to operate with far more members than it has, and especially in Ukraine's case, because it would be the largest member state to join the European Union since Spain joined in 1986. But the, the specific Orban question, and somewhat similar in Poland, when a country goes in a Trumpian direction mm. and challenges the institutions of democracy and the rule of law. Uh, and, and, and both those countries in different ways have, have done it. What does the European Union do? Well, there is no easy answer mm. because uh, unanimity is required for almost any sensitive decision like that. And as long as Hungary and, and Poland take a different view, uh, there's not much that Europe can do. I mean, Europe, Europe is... Um, stands by the rule of law, unlike yeah. the UK in relation to the protocol. And so it can't break its own rules and mm. sort of punish Hungary or Poland in a way that its own rules don't permit. And then if you want specifically on the issue of taking action against a country because it's broken democratic norms, then 26 can act against one. But mm. so far, Poland has backed up Hungary. Yeah. And, but and Poland well, and Hungary have drifted apart because Poland is the most supportive country of Ukraine, whereas Hungary is the least supportive of Hungary of Ukraine. So there's a certain distancing uh, of them. But mind you, Poland and Hungary historically very, very close. They've been uh, allies for centuries, haven't they? And um, so, uh, it, well, so we don't really have a solution to the rogue state within Europe. Um, we, do, we don't have a solution, uh, but, you know, we, we have um, processes in train uh, you know, examining the possibility of withholding funding, uh, mm. which doesn't necessarily require unanimity. So that's in train. We have um, yeah, a court of justice ruling that uh, rules that the, the way that co Poland is organizing its courts mm. is not compatible with EU law. And the Polish response to that is, well, you know, EU law can't trump Polish law, but of course it can. And yeah. if they maintain that position, uh, then they're heading into uh, a lot and, of difficulties. And, and, and it can democratically, on foot of honouring the treaty that uh, the Polish people signed, or the Polish government signed to accede to the Union in the first place. I mean, there's part of the UK conversation is this strange perception that uh, somehow when you keep your side of the deal, that equates to a loss of sovereignty. Uh, but, you know, it, you have to do deals and when you've done them you have to stick to them well it's a, it's 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 a basic 
aspect of sovereignty and democracy. I mean, the British proclaim the importance of their sovereignty and they're entitled to do that. And mm. Ireland attaches huge importance to our sovereignty. And one way we use our sovereignty is to, is to, is to work with our partners in the European Union mm. uh, through treaties that we have signed up to and have approved in referenda. Um, but uh, one of the most obvious uh, illustrations or examples of sovereignty is to sign treaties. Yeah. That is that is giving value to your sovereignty. And if you sign a treaty and then say you're not going to implement it, you're actually disrespecting your own sovereignty. Yeah, and sounding rather silly <clears throat> on the world stage and, you know, unable to challenge China and Hong Kong, for example, because, um, you know, here you are contemplating breaking international law. Extraordinary to think that Britain has done that to its own uh, credibility. And as I say, all in the last five years, if you, you know, if we'd had this conversation in... in uh, May of 2016, um, it would have been unthinkable to see. Well, of things. course, I agree. I, you know, I mean, I, I was speaking at a conference last last week uh, in Lille, and it was about the future of British-Irish foreign policy. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> I was speaking with the retired British diplomat, and we agreed on everything. And I, I made the point that, you know, Britain and Ireland, or the British and Irish governments now see the, the world in different ways mm. in terms of uh, what sovereignty means in terms of what really taking control means in terms yeah. of what going global means we have completely different views but the irony is that you know the retired uh, distinguished British diplomats of recent decades would all agree with the Irish government rather than the British government on those issues yeah um, so uh, you know one hopes that the that the center of gravity will move back towards the towards the sense of it will we have to we have to remain optimistic I mean after all the, the Tory party um has been deeply divided for decades. Uh, you know, mm. th th there are two wings. Uh, you know, John Major had his problems. He called the the extreme Eurosceptics the bastards. Yeah. Uh, you know, th th they they brought him down. They brought Theresa May down. The split brought Boris Johnson down, and so on. Uh, so, so the debate is not finished in the Conservative Party. But also, of course, the Labour Party has always taken, uh, at least in since the very the very early years of the European Union, has taken a very um, constructive and sensible view of Europe and even if for the yeah, moment well, either for electoral yeah. reasons or other they're not talking yeah, about rebuilding well, Brexit yeah, but Cor Cor Corbyn didn't and Keir Starmer is, is abstaining so far yes I think he's is, making a political calculation yeah. that in order to get elected which in a way is his main responsibility that he he doesn't want to reopen Brexit and maybe maybe he won't certainly not for the moment but I think he will not um, want to break international law he will you know he will not be refighting the Second World War he will not be comparing the European Union to Soviet Russia Soviet and, Soviet Union and the extraordinary binary system in the UK as the US does in terms of of, of the parties that share power over the generations um, here in Ireland um, and in a sense you're what is it perverse to say you're expertise might not be Ireland because you know actually you spent a lot of your time outside of the country but but um, here in Ireland what if we were to get a government that was less respectful of international norms was um, uh, uh, you know far 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 more uh, hostile towards the entire European project than governments have been here to in Ireland and um, what, what do you think our future looks like in terms of where we go next well I don't think that's going to happen I mean I think you know there is the prospect of Sinn Féin uh, coming into government is not certain, but it seems certainly very, very possible. Uh, but I think uh, there is a consensus in Ireland on Europe. There wasn't always, after all, Sinn Féin you know, opposed a few of the EU treaties yeah. that would have done, if, if they had won the debate, done more damage to Ireland than Brexit did. But they seem to have, 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 have moved on a lot from that. Um, and... Uh, 
and I think our media as well, as I was saying earlier, I mean, you know, our, our, um, our main media take, um, you know, a, a pretty robust view of challenging everybody that potentially makes mistakes rather than half or more of them standing on the sidelines praising whoever the Conservative Prime Minister of the day happens to be. Yeah. So I think we, you know, so uh, we back, have to be careful, we have to be vigilant, yeah, but, but I don't think those worst excesses are on the cards, even if there's a change of government here. Because we're better served by our media and or because we have a, a, a proportional system of representation that sort of um, tends to make it more difficult for extremes to, to grab all the levers. Yeah, there's... Uh, no, I wouldn't say better media because the British have great media, but yeah. we don't have a bad media along yeah. with the good media there in the same an way. actively malign uh, influence No, no we, we don't have that. Uh, and we have consensus on Europe. Uh, I'm not saying we don't have to be vigilant. I mean, mm. uh, populism and the use of social media and so on is uh, on the rise everywhere. But um, at least for the moment... Uh, I, I don't, I mean, of course, the IRA in the old days did challenge the institutions yeah. of the state and they, 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 they you know, killed Gardaí and, and so on. Um, but in recent decades, uh, you know, that all now seems to be in the past. And the sort of challenging of the British state that we saw by prorogan parliament and by calling judges enemies of the people that we saw, yeah. we don't see that from any quarter here. Thankfully, thankfully. Um, so the challenge for your successors then in Ireland, um, what you say, are restore the quality of relations with the UK, would that certainly be one strategic plank of your successors to do list you mean in the whole department of foreign yeah, affairs yeah. well for ireland inc even as you know what are our priorities over the next period well we have three major challenges the first is to uh, maximize our influence in the european union to protect and promote our interests it's something we've always done well but the only yardstick that's worthwhile is whether we could do it better uh, it, it's as the union enlarges and without britain there it, it becomes even more challenging but yeah. we're ready for it we're we, we unlike most countries we have an embassy in every eu country we've expanded our embassies in paris and berlin and other larger capitals um, there's a lot of political focus in ireland on europe uh, we have to decide uh, where to position ourselves in terms of alliances, in terms of policy, which I can go into if you like, but that that, that is probably the major yeah. existential area for us. The and second, deep in the weeds, you know, I'm a head of cattle versus amount of you know alliances with countries on how we collectively respond to the climate challenge. For exactly. Example. Well, we, it's it's happening all the time. I'm not sure how many people in Ireland fully realise that every single day in Brussels across numerous meeting rooms there are Irish representatives shaping every piece of legislation every policy every statement that comes through and we almost always at least shape it sufficiently to uh, to protect our concerns and, and promote interests where, where necessary so we have the potential to do that but it requires hard work at both political mm. and official level um, the second big challenge for foreign policy is what do we do with our nearest neighbor I mean clearly because of history, because of geography, because of our shared trade interests, because of our sacred shared responsibility for peace in Northern Ireland, we have to maintain as good a relationship as possible with the UK. Uh, and in recent years, that hasn't been all that easy. But I have to say that the behaviour of, of of the coalition government and uh, has been uh, very constructive. They've been courteous. They've uh, not tried to make difficulties for the British. I'm sure we the, the same now with Liz, Liz Truss's government. So, yes, we, we have to work towards that, but it, there's no magic switch that we can pull yeah. to make that better. And it really comes down to three things. One is tone. I mean, hopefully the British... It's, and all of these balls are in the British court. The, the first is, 
you know, w- will they use a constructive tone towards Ireland and towards the European Union? Because yeah. after all, hurling insults at the European Union are also insults of Ireland because it's part of what we are. Mm-hmm. The European flag flies beside our flag outside pub- public buildings. The second is, will they move to implement the Northern Ireland Protocol, which was agreed with such such difficulty. And in that, of course, Europe and Ireland will have to be very flexible, but it yeah, needs to be implemented. Which, just as an aside, is actually working quite well. And Northern Ireland is, is out-prospering virtually every other region in the UK. And um, you know, just, just purely looking at the economic numbers, um, Northern Ireland should be strongly in favour of the protocol arrangement. And in fact, you know, the majority of, of, of people in Northern Ireland yes. are. So there's the, a touch of the artificial stoked nature to this particular uh, round. Yes, it, it, it isn't possible uh, to have your cake and eat it. And, um, you know, obviously a lot of businesses in the north would like to get rid of some of the bureaucracy on trade between Britain and Northern Ireland. And some of that can be got rid of, mm-hmm. and, and the European Union is working on that. But you can't get rid of it completely because then you wouldn't have the access to the wider European market, which is so good yeah. for, for the Northern Ireland economy. And the third thing that we have to do... The, initiative that we need from the British government is to return to the co-guarantorship on the peace process mm-hmm. on all issues which served both governments and Northern Ireland so well for so long and that sort of instinctive thing of acting together uh, has been lost during the Johnson years and hopefully we can return to that and thirdly so the third major area for foreign policy we have we have the European Union we have Britain and the third one is if you like global Ireland yeah. so the decision to double our global footprint by 2025 that is within seven years from when the global Ireland document was announced uh, that's progressing extraordinarily rapidly Rapidly. Mm. I mean, between t- 2018 and the end of this year, we will have opened 20 new diplomatic missions, which is an increase of 25% on where we were before. And, and that we, is paralleled by Enterprise Ireland, the IDA, Tourism Ireland. Da, 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 downstream of that, then you'd expect to see increased trade flows. Exactly. Commercial engagement. And is that happening? Are we getting the return on that investment, do you think? Oh, I, I just look at the way the economy is doing. I know okay. there's a lot of doom and gloom about the Irish economy. And, and there are bad things in this country. We know there are. We know there's a housing crisis. But, but overall, there was that survey the other day saying that Ireland was the eighth best country to live in in the world. And, yeah. You know, by and large, I think that's true. There's, you know, there's so many good things about this country. And look, again, you know, if you, if you look at the, the way the airports have performed in recent times, it's was pretty poor. But one of the reasons that there were the problems a few months ago at airports is because 50,000 Irish people a day are going abroad on holidays. Yeah. So, you know, it's we're really doing pretty well. And I think what we need to do is not just to criticise the government when they get things wrong, and they do get things wrong, but we also need to acknowledge that when things are going well for Ireland, they're not the product of pure chance. Yeah. They're the product of policies developed by successive governments. And, and in the interests of intelligent conversation in Ireland, just because it's politically expedient, can, can we can we not start off with an assumption that this entire country is a basket case and everything's well, exactly. gone to the dogs? It, um, of course, we always have to say, Conor, you and I, of course, that nobody's saying for a moment that yeah. everything is perfect. There are there are bad things. There's our inability to to house asylum seekers. There's there's mm. uh, you know, but we're down to virtually no unemployment. Yeah. Uh, most people live pretty well, can afford to go on holidays. Uh, you know, we're, we're wealthier per capita than the British than most countries in Europe. So that's not to t- say there are bad I, things, I, but I, we shouldn't forget the good I, things I, either. If we have things like an unresolved problems in the health service or the housing crisis that we currently have. We're more likely to get the treatment correct if we get the diagnosis correct. And if our diagnosis is, well, the whole country's just a wreck, 
you're not only is that at odds with the facts, you're very unlikely to get the treatment right if that's your diagnosis. Um, so can we find ways to fix housing without um, pulling down everything else in the process? Yes, no, we, we have to we have to look at things in the round and see what's bad, but also see what's good. Um, very good. So the career civil servant's perspective on life is, is, is telling his political masters just exactly that, day in, day out for 40 years. Well, that's... A- I suppose, I mean, politicians are in a position to form their own judgment about what's happening in society in general. But certainly it's the role of civil servants within their areas of responsibility to tell politicians the facts as they understand them and to tell them what the options are and what the implications of those, those options are. And I think civil servants have done that pretty well for many governments uh, over a very, very long time. Yeah, I think it's always been my experience because you come across civil servants as they flank ministers or as you engage with them offline following up on things that have happened from ministerial conversations and invariably exactly that. It was a very professional sense of professionalism from the entity and also, you know, a good strong sense of loyalty uh, that comes across as well. Most of them seem to like their ministers, uh, whether that's just good at, good at appearing that way, but it seems to be... There may be an element of appearance there, but I have to say, you know, you would not necessarily expect a civil servant in Ireland to be very positive about politicians, because after all, you know, I've had to deal with their foibles, the good ones and the bad ones, over a very long period of time. But I have to say that that overall, I'm very impressed by our politicians. We're well represented internationally uh, and you know, they stand very good comparison with the politicians of of most other countries. Uh, And by and large, as I say, while you get some that aren't that easy to work with, uh, the majority are pretty good. Yeah, Uh, I share the view. I share the view. So I think we're broadly optimistic then um, in in, in finishing, Bobby. Listen, it's great to hear from you. Um, You're writing in the Irish Times quite a bit these days. I'm not sure how systematically, but it comes up a lot. So It's about once every three weeks. I mean, I I don't have a a weekly column as such, but they're pretty good at taking what I send them. They are indeed. And you're very insightful, particularly in things like uh, Brexit and background and context there. So I recommend it to two people if they want to keep an eye on you. Um, And you're keeping busy in other walks of life as well as you uh yes i trained as an executive coach so i do a little bit around that and um i uh, the main thing in my life is grandchildren i I have 11 wonderful grandchildren there's a lot of you know fun we can have with them on holidays and otherwise and i play a lot of tennis just across the road uh and uh, i've taken up painting as a hobby and i I want to do a bit paintings on the way in yes well uh, i hope they're okay and then we um we hope now that COVID is out of the way to do a bit more travel. So, you know, life is good and there's always something on. I have a book club. I have a book oh, club tonight. Fantastic. I love my book club. That's, yeah. uh, that's uh, you know, as good as anything that I'm doing. It gets you to read stuff you wouldn't otherwise read and, and you have great chats about it. So, so, yeah. so busy in body and mind. I can recommend yeah. retirement, but only partial retirement. Very good. Very good. Yeah, I'm figuring it out. Figuring it out. Uh, Bobby, listen, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Pleasure, Connor. So that's former Irish diplomat Bobby McDonough. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Do remember to check out previous episodes where I meet people like Dermot Ferreter, Nuala Carey, Frankie Sheehan, Theresa Mannion, Paul Williams and others. It's all there on seniortimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. Just Google Driving Life with Connor Faulkner and you can email me at connorfaulkner at gmail.com. Until next time, drive safely, live happily and come back and see us again.
Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations.